Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is April 14th, 2022, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Amjad Iraqi. Amjad is an editor and a writer at 972 Magazine. He is also a policy analyst at the think tank Ashebeka and was previously an advocacy director, uh, sorry, an advocacy coordinator at the legal center Adala. Uh, Amjad is a Palestinian citizen of Israel based in Haifa. You can follow his work, and you should, at at sign AJ underscore Iraqi, I-R-A-Q-I. You can also follow him at www.972mag.com, and you can read his work in places like the London Review of Books and The Guardian. Amjad, I am so grateful that you're joining me today. Thank you for coming back again to Occupied Thoughts, so welcome. Thanks so much um, for having me. Really. We are going to dive right in. I have a very long list of questions, which I have tried to really squeeze down to a few. Um, I, I wanted to have you on today because there is a ton of information out there. There are news spot reports about terrible things, scary things, worrying things happening in Israel-Palestine. There are hot takes all over social media about why they are happening, what they mean, what happens next. There's anal analysis from all sorts of perspectives. I wanted to get your perspective. Um, the situation is clearly volatile and rapidly deteriorating. So first off, just sort of scene setting, what is going on and why do you think it is happening now? Uh, it's a tough question to answer, to be honest. Um, the best I could try to organize it for now is um, there is indeed a sort of uh, an intensification of violence in Israel-Palestine, but I think we also have to be clear about what kind that is and why they're kind of dominating the conversation at the moment. So at the moment, there's sort of two main kind of um, types of violence which are getting attention. One is a sort of um, kind of sporadic, unorganized violence, which has been uh, committed by uh, several Palestinians in the past uh, few weeks. And then on the other hand, there is the structural systemic violence being perpetrated by the Israeli state. Um, so to kind of unpack the first one, so the real kind of, um, maybe not the real one, but the, one of the prominent features of what's been happening the past few weeks uh, is these several attacks that have uh, taken place in Israeli cities uh, like Hadera, uh, Beersheba, and Tel Aviv. Uh, the first, uh, both Beersheba and Hadera were committed by Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, or 48 Palestinians, and the one in Tel Aviv uh, was committed by a Palestinian from uh, the Janine refugee camp. Um, and um, and these, as far as the Israeli security authorities are concerned, they seem to see this as they're actually quite individual attacks or even like very tiny cells, or it doesn't seem to be any kind of organized plan uh, or any clear agenda as to why these individuals uh, did these attacks. Um, uh, but what it has kind of sparked up is not only these kind of other sort of attempted sporadic individual attacks, but it's also, um, created a bit of a, a response from the Israeli state, which is bringing on this intensification of structural and systemic violence. So literally, um, you know, and all this has to be packaged in with the fact that over the past few weeks, you know, there's been a lot of sort of anticipation and talk in the political scene and in the media about the high holidays of uh, the Muslim month of Ramadan and of course the Jewish holiday of Passover. And the idea that them coinciding is somehow gonna heighten political tensions, which, Yes, there can be elements of this, you know, of these days in, in terms of the political sphere, but in reality, what that means is that the Israeli authorities for weeks were kind of gearing up and launching new military activities as sort of preventative measures in the occupied territories, um, also to some extent in 48, to try to uh, 
circumvent and prevent a kind of repetition of what had happened last year. Um, whether or not that they were sort of strategically correct in analyzing that, but this is this has been going on for several weeks, and it's uh, kind of um, really burst out by these attacks in the Israeli cities. Um, and yeah, this is kind of like the the best way I can sort of uh, characterize these different two types of violence. And with that, to say that while they're all while they're all certainly serious, uh, it's important to keep in mind that this is not suddenly some kind of surge in violence that necessarily created in Israel-Palestine. For weeks and for months and for the past year, even after the May events, the Israeli state has been perpetrating violence constantly in the occupied territories. Uh, there were arrest campaigns even against Palestinian citizens in Israel. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course, a constant blockade on Gaza and Palestinians being killed throughout the year. So it's important to keep in mind that it wasn't that everything was just quiet and there was a lull, but because there were attacks in Israeli cities for the first time in a very long time to this kind of extent, it really burst the bubble uh, of Jewish Israeli consciousness that reminded them that, oh, it, it, things are not entirely safe. Um, and this is, uh, is what has kind of intensified uh, Israeli activities, which have been ongoing to, uh, let's say, a lesser extent than the weeks before. Yeah, I, I want to dig into a bunch of things you just said, but just to echo, I mean, one of the things that's very striking looking at the, the media coverage of this, um, of what's happening today is, I think people who don't follow Israel-Palestine um, closely all the time, would be likely to believe that things had been fine and quiet and calm and suddenly that calm was burst by some terrorist attacks um, inside the Green Line. Um, it, it, it's sort of like the idea of a cycle that starts with a Palestinian attack as opposed to an ongoing structural, a system of structural violence. Um, I, I was just thinking I, I should have looked up the B'Tselem statistics before we got on the call to look at the number of Palestinians killed since say the end of last summer's crisis to the beginning of this new crisis where we've just come into it because it's been an ongoing, um, the, the violence is always ongoing, but it really only bursts into the news when we see um, Israelis um, feeling it. And that is, that's one of the tragedies of this, of this conflict. The, um, the speaking of last year, <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk um, and, and like you said, this talk predated um, this, this current sort of cycle of media focus and, and Israeli um, fears. There has been concern from the um, security analyst community, certainly the, the broader observers saying, hey, we saw what happened last summer um, with the lead up into May and then a war, and, and this could happen again. Can you talk about how, where we are today, what are the similarities to where things were last year in terms of whether it's Israeli policy or the mood on the ground or the, 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 the equities that are at stake in Jerusalem or, or more broadly, and, and also how, how is it different? Um, it, 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 to, to what extent is that, a, is that a false analogy? Yeah. I mean, there are definitely a lot of, uh, let's say, um, uh, flickers of the same kind of common core issues that affected uh, the May events of last year. Uh, and you're certainly seeing a lot of them here because a lot of them are quite constant in Israel-Palestine. But I would say it's a little too premature for people to be making too many comparisons between them. Uh, first, the way we have to understand last May, it was quite... It was a rather rare, perfect storm that led to the Palestinian uprising, that led to um, you know, the Israeli state violence at the time. You know, we were talking about an accumulation of 
uh, first of all, like an, an accumulation of many disasters to the Palestinian cause. This is after the deal of, of deal of the century was announced. These were the Arab normalization agreements and this increasing isolation of the Palestinian cause. This was all leading up to uh, May 2021. Um, and then, you know, what started building up in April and May uh, was this kind of this tw these twin struggles of uh, the neighborhood of uh, Sheikh Jarrah, which was fighting against forced, uh, forced evictions. Uh, uh, in favor of Jewish Israeli settlers, and at the same at the same exact time, there were uh, Israeli restrictions and violence being inflicted on Palestinians who were trying to kind of claim Damascus Gate as a space for Ramadan festivities. Um, and so you kind of had these two things going at the same time, and really putting Jerusalem back into the center of Palestinian uh, national consciousness at the time, which hadn't really been done in quite a while. Um, and this was especially after a very long period or a relatively long period where you didn't really see any major Palestinian political mobilization uh, to that kind of scale or nor like a major war um, in, in Gaza as the years before. So there was a lot of kind of uh, factors, not unprecedented, but they all, for, like I said, formed this kind of perfect storm to create the conditions for this uprising, for this renewed consciousness. Um, and, you know, and through that, you had the synchronization of Israeli state violence from the river to the sea and that synchronization of Palestinian resistance. We're not really seeing that right now. Uh, for the, the first reason, and this is kind of speaking very broadly and it's still very early to tell, of course, but one of the first reasons that Palestinians are still recuperating from what happened last May, uh, especially in places like Gaza, which was heavily bombarded, you know, over 11 days of, um, of, of war. Uh, also, Palestinian citizens in Israel, there was a massive uh, arrest campaign against Palestinian activists and other acts of repression, um, you know, as just examples. Um, so, the, you know, Israeli state violence really did its job uh, in sort of trying to uh, disproportionately just kind of um, inflict a cost on Palestinians for doing what they did. Uh, this is by no means is dissuading for pa Palestinians from their struggle, but it means that it kind of reverts to have to recover, to try to recuperate. And in Gaza, that's literal reconstruction and, recuper and recuperation, which has been impossible over years of blockade and constant wars, etc. Um, so you're not having that energy. No one is prepared for that sort of thing. And with that, there's also a big uncertainty among Palestinians about, you know, even if we did try to mobilize, and obviously the, well, we have all the same reasons for it, what, will it, what can it achieve right now? I mean, last year was, was quite... It felt very unique, uh, but even then, you know, there's still a lot of reflections about, okay, where, where are we now compared to where we are last year? And will a mass uprising of any kind even uh, have any effect? The, you know, it's not like an organized thought, but these are some of the kind of feelings and discussions that are had by people that we can't do this again right now. And so there's this return to kind of dormancy. Um, again, it's not that the, that the struggle is, is all somehow off, but it's that Palestinians need to recuperate. And the second kind of dynamic, I think, is that at least so far in the past couple of weeks, the Israeli authorities themselves seem to be a little scattered and confused about how to kind of handle what's been going on. I mean, like I said, the fact that the attacks in Israeli cities happened were basically individuals with no organized planning means there's no real clear enemy, uh, especially when there were like 48 Palestinians. And the instinct was just to kind of go into sort of acts of collective punishment. But even the Israeli authorities are admitting now that maybe you know, that the issue is more, is more complicated. We can't do a repeat of what we did last year. Uh, and you're seeing this in the way, even in like Jerusalem, for example, whereby for the first few days of Ramadan, you know, the police were doing what they always do, just like assaulting people and, and you know, and, and trying to just restrict them for like no good, for, for no reason at all. And 
but um, but now I think they're also trying to like readapt, being like, okay, we need to think differently about this. And now the, uh, the the violence is kind of being much more concentrated in the northern West Bank. So it's kind of going back to sort of creating these little pockets of where the you know quote unquote conflict is is being focused on, or where this heightened violence is. Um, so yeah, but, I mean, these are just kind of some broad characterizations, but altogether, you're not really getting that same synchronization as last year of the, of the violence and the resistance um, and uh, this, again, it's still very early to tell. No one really knows what's going to happen. But I think these are two main factors which are sort of uh, keeping it, um, you know, it's not creating echoes of what it was last year. Thanks. And I, I, I woke up this morning to the news that the, uh, the Israelis had a, arrested a, a, an extremist Jewish cell in Jerusalem that was trying to figure out that they wanted to perform a, an animal sacrifice on the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif. You, you do get the sense that there, there are a lot of parties at work trying to figure out how to escalate it to something that looks more like last year. Um, we'll get into that. I have another question that we'll touch on that in, in a bit. But you know, going back to, to talking about last year versus this year. So last year, and you, you alluded to this, one of, one of the big stories um, with last year's news was the involvement of Palestinian citizens of Israel, people, 48 Palestinians in widespread protests. This year, so far, the big story with respect to Palestinian citizens of Israel has been that you had two Palestinian citizens of Israel who committed acts of terrorism inside the Green Line, and, and allegedly out of support for ISIS, which I have to say to me sounds very strange. Um, but regardless, talk about what that means in terms of, a, you know, you, you just talked about the, 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 to the extent that there is a shift, it's that right now you have a community that is more um, exhausted or demoralized and not organizing in the same way it was last year. At the same time, though, we didn't last year see um, 48 Palestinians um, carrying out attacks inside Israel. So is there a relationship between the events of last year and the effects on Palestinians living inside 40 and 48? And what we're seeing now in terms of a new a new face of terrorism, is it just random or is, is I mean, I, I'm not asking you to make a connection you don't think is there, but it, it, it's I'm, in, I'm interested if you see any any dynamic, any relationship in the dynamics there. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, I don't necessarily see any major links per se. Um, the, a main reason is that you know the attacks that happened in Israeli cities uh, again they didn't really happen with any clear motive other than, than these kind of individuals claiming themselves to be ISIS supporters uh, and the fact that already that they're ISIS supporters it has you know as far as most the vast vast majority of Palestinians are concerned that's not a group that uh, that anyone uh, has any affinity to that's roundly rejected by the community um, even Islamist groups among Palestinians roundly reject uh, ISIS for all that they've done around the Middle East so. It's you know the fact that it's, it's these kind of very specific individuals with these very specific identities. It, you know they're not necessarily people that the community wants to get, is interested in getting behind. Um, and so yeah, it's you know the kind of let's say the more salient elements of these this recent uh, intensification of violence is not really something to, for Palestinians to mobilize behind. Um, but with that said, you know Palestinian citizens are the ones who are now paying the price for those actions. Uh, you know, so if there's no, you know, there's no similarity in terms of Palestinian citizens mobilizing as last year, but the Israeli state is acting exactly the way it did last year as well. Uh, you know, they increased police patrols of Palestinian communities inside Israel. Uh, they started uh, going about a couple of arrests. Uh, all of a sudden, they started becoming interested in the uh, the proliferation of illegal firearms in, uh, in Arab communities in Israel, which the community has been demanding 
action for because it's Palestinian citizens who are harming others, uh, other Palestinian citizens before they even reach to uh, Jewish Israelis. But suddenly the state gets interested when it is uh, when it is Jews who are being um, who are being attacked. Uh, you know, and this is also in addition to just kind of like widespread racism being felt by a lot of Palestinian citizens. Like it's like the society and the state stepping in uh, to automatically paint all Palestinian citizens as potential threats and suspects. Um, so yeah, this is the this is a kind of same dynamic, and it's beyond. It's happened way well before last year, but it's the same kind of re repeated cycle. Yeah, I, I think it's important on the the question of the ISIS piece of it to to make clear that that there is. I mean there's never been any, as far as I've seen from polling, from my own experience, I've never seen any analysis that shows any affinity amongst the body politic on either side of the green line for ISIS. I have to say when when I see an attack in Israel claimed by Palestinian, by Palestinians claiming to be affiliated with ISIS, I see that as somebody essentially making, a, it, it's a protest affiliation, it's a repudiation, and a, it, it doesn't actually suggest a, a any sort of, it, it's not a political alignment in the in the sense in other parts of the region, that's just, it, that doesn't make sense, I think, for the Palestinian context, or for most yeah. Palestinians. Um, absolutely, but, absolutely, like it usually means that, you know, someone's going online to kind of get these sort of, uh, you know, these, these sermons, etc. but in the end, ISIS not, is not by no means a kind of national, Project national movement that's not as really has any interest in, in Palestinian society. Yeah, I mean it's actually striking given the the openness to given that online um, online radicalization is available to the whole world, and uh, given the uh, the the access the the, the lack of of um, of traction for ISIS in in this area is I think actually the this is the exception that proves the rule. Um, I want to actually go, to, you wrote an article, I think it was published April 5th, and I'll include a link to that with this podcast. Um, you wrote an article about collective punishment, and, and you just referenced it a little bit. Um, obviously, Israel's response to the recent attacks, both committed by citizens of Israel, um, Palestinian citizens of Israel, and by the person from the West Bank has been, you know, collective punishment, which is what Israel always does. And I'm going to quote part of your article. So you wrote, um, at its heart, collective punishment is an exercise in plain racism. In Israeli eyes, every Palestinian is a permanent suspect, a terrorist waiting to strike, a member of a society that teaches its children to hate Jews. It doesn't matter if hundreds of thousands of people had nothing to do with the attacks. When one Palestinian crosses the line, every Palestinian must pay the price. So I want you to talk a little bit about collective punishment. First of all, for people who are listening who aren't exactly sure what you mean, um, it, talk about what it means. Why, why is it wrong <laughs> to punish an entire neighborhood for the act of one person living in one apartment? Why is it wrong to, to punish a family for the act of one of their children? And, and, and specifically, we talk a lot, I think, in, about how it's used in the West Bank. Can you talk about how it's used by Israel inside the Green Line? Definitely. I mean, so collective punishment is really at, at the heart of how Israel manages its apartheid regime. Uh, it is its default tactic. It's an addictive behavior on the part of the state that whenever something infringes upon the peace, so to speak, that the answer is to punish uh, every Palestinian because a Palestinian on this side of the green line or the other is an inherent threat. Um, and what this looks like, you know, it, it, on one hand, it can look like the blockade in the Gaza Strip, which is collective punishment on mass, uh, literally 2 million people encaged 
because of, uh, or ostensibly because of Hamas, uh, the idea that this is your political leadership, therefore all you 2 million people will not be able to leave the Strip, you won't be able to access basic medical services, we can bombard you when you dare cross the line, etc., etc. Um, and in the West Bank, of course, you know, every time you have some kind of an attack like in, in Israeli city or against the settlement, uh, the Israeli army will immediately create like a closure around any Palestinian town, they'll set up flying checkpoints, uh, anything and everything to basically block off even basic Palestinian social life. And, and, and demolish the home of the family of the person, you exactly. know, this is, this is the sins of the father, sins of the son visited upon. Um, exactly. people who are not guilty of anything except a relationship to the person who committed a, allegedly or, or actually committed a crime. Exactly. It goes from the macro all the way down to the to the micro, like to the, to the individual people. And we see this in Jerusalem as well, uh, like very, very intensively. Um, now inside 48, inside Israel, you know, you actually have a lot of the same sort of processes. Um, in my hometown in Tiri, for example, which is in the Triangle area, uh, the moment there's any kind of uh, like a West Banker who comes in, uh, West Bank who comes in to launch an attack, for example, they start creating checkpoints around the Arab towns inside Israel. Uh, they start launching arrest campaigns. Uh, they, uh, again, increase police patrols. And, uh, and like, like I was mentioning before, there's also a kind of like social collective punishment by Jewish Israelis who start uh, kind of increasing their suspicion of Palestinians walking on a beach or going to work or hearing Arabic on the bus and so on and so forth. So you, and you really feel this, um, you know, this collective glare and this uh, this this regearing of the of the state's power towards you as a Palestinian citizen, it's why we always have this immediate fear. Whenever we hear that there's an attack going on in Israeli city, whenever we hear Jewish Israeli has been has been shot, all, every Palestinian knows, including on this side of the green line, that oh no, what's going to happen? Uh, it's why you know Emil Fahim, uh, because well, two of the assailants were from Emil Fahim, the police immediately went off and blocked and blocked off the road and just like that's we're going to assume everyone is a, is a suspect. Now, part of this collective punishment is quite performative. Uh, this is what I kind of wrote in the piece. You know, it's, uh, sometimes it's to show Jewish Israelis that something's being done and to make this uh, also the army or police authorities think that something's being done. Um, a part of it is also based on this very dubious theory of deterrence. The idea that, uh, like I said, like if your father commits a sin, or we need to try deterring your father or your son from committing the sin by uh, kind of uh, increasing the cost of your action, of your violent act. But this could also happen if you're doing a nonviolent act. Uh, and in fact, this uh, attempt at uh, punishing uh, people only reinforces uh, the Palestinian experience of the apartheid regime, only reinforces the experience of the occupation, or it reinforces um, you know, this understanding of the Israeli state saying it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do, we will find a way to punish you in, in some form or another. And like we said, from the macro to the micro, this is felt by every Palestinian. Uh, and here we're seeing it in Janine now is a it's kind of like a prime example where um, you know one of the assailants was from the refugee camp and immediately the army came in, closed off the city, they banned uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel who frequently go to Janine for family, for friends, for for business, and so on, and immediately cut them off. Like suddenly the entire city and the refugee camp and the areas around it, you are all suspect. You are all to pay the price for this one individual's tactics. Uh, it's disproportionate. It does not create any through deterrence. It is literally uh, a prime mechanism for Israel to constantly assert its control and its authority over Palestinians. And you see this on both sides of the Green Line. And I, I think it's worth adding, it is explicitly illegal under international law. 
to mete out punishment against innocent civilians, to punish them for the crimes of others, or in an effort to deter, to create a deterrent. You, you cannot immiserate civilians because somebody because someone else created a, committed a crime. That, that's illegal international law. And it, generally speaking, in the modern sense of rule of law is, is not done. That's, that's ancient retributive, retributive non-justice. Um, all right, so I want to, I'm gonna, I'm, we're getting close to the end of the time. I wanna take us in a slightly different direction. Um, but related, which is it looks it looks like Israel is back in a period of domestic political turmoil after a brief flirtation with a coalition government and the quote unquote stability that 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 offered. Um, that appears now to have fallen apart or be falling apart. So how do you see that relating to the current um, mounting crisis, um, so to speak? Uh, there, there is a media narrative, and you referenced it, that the Israeli government is actually trying to tamp down tensions um, in the immediate run-up to what this weekend is going to be, you know, Passover, Easter, and the middle of Ramadan, and while, you know, people, while various on social media, you have efforts to ramp up tensions on the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif, you know, it, the Israeli government is allegedly doing what they can to not have that happen, and, and increasing work permits and other things to show that they want some stability. But on the other hand, and this is the structural part that maybe people don't pay as much attention to, we are seeing Palestinians killed every day right now in the West Bank, Palestinians injured by the IDF and by settlers. We are seeing um, daily statements about you know, more settlements and land. I mean, it, it's, it's nonstop. So that's all going on. And then on top of that is the reality that lame duck government periods in Israel often see um, conflagrations with Gaza. Um, which is, doesn't mean it's determinative, but it's one of those factors. So taking all of that into account, how do you see the domestic political ground shifting? Um, and, and how do you see that playing into the current, um, the current crisis? Yeah, this is also quite hard to tell. It was literally just last week that uh, you know, the coalition whip uh, left, uh, left the government. And so, and this is right before everyone, was, was, everyone in the parliament was gonna go off on leave. Uh, go off for a break. So a lot of things are up in the air and we're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, I mean, to be honest... Um, we'll invite you back for another podcast about that once things start to come <laughs> into focus, sorry. Yeah, no, there'll be tons to, there'll be tons to talk about for sure. Um, I mean, the, the, these political shifts and developments are certainly important, but I think it's... Again, we have to kind of keep our eyes on the ball when, it, when we're trying to understand why all this is happening. You know, we've seen these kind of uh, intensifications of violence under Netanyahu. We've seen them under many different, uh, different kinds of prime ministers. The structure, however, remains the same. You can put a different prime minister, different politicians, but the system itself is still operating. Uh, There's even like interviews, for example, I was seeing uh, in Israeli media where you know, they're like interviewing like the, the IDF commander for the Janine area, and he's kind of laying out his, his, his philosophy and principle of being like, yeah, as far as we're concerned, there is no area A, I'm almost like quoting it. There is no area A, we operate, we come in and go as we please, when we please. This happens whether or not Bennett is in power, whether it was Netanyahu, that structure. And just to remind people, area A of the West Bank is the part of the West Bank under the Oslo Accords in which the Palestinians are supposed to have full civilian and security control as opposed to area B, where Palestinians are supposed to have civilian control, but Israel has security control, and then area C, where Israel controls everything, which is 60 some percent of the West Bank. 
Sorry, go ahead. No, exactly. And this is and it's just like very demonstrative that how much the political and military consensus is that Israel owns everything between the river and the sea, that Israel operates as it pleases between the river and the sea. And this is crucial. It's not just Palestinians have been saying it. Even the Israelis themselves are confessing, yeah, this is how we see it. Um, and so once you kind of zoom out from the, you know, from the political dramas that are going to Knesset, you understand that in the end, this is this structure is still going to be in place. Um, and here we come back, I think in our, you know, in our last conversation a while back, you know, we were talking about um, um, you know, this whole policy of shrinking the conflict, you know, the idea that Bennett is, the Bennett-Lapid government is trying to uh, ease up tensions per se, but we're actually seeing what that policy uh, is in action. And I think we talked about this last time, but here we're having yet another live demonstration. What it means is uh, crushing any kind of Palestinian resistance, any kind of Palestinian infringement, uh, and keep basically keeping quiet for Israelis. So literally after the attacks, uh, after the attacks in, Isra in Israeli cities, pretty much everything went back to normal, which as far as the Israeli state is, as well as far as the Israeli state is concerned, is a success. What did it take to create that normalcy or to make Jewish Israelis feel normal? It, it, it coming back to that performative aspect of uh, a collective punishment. The Israeli state uh, basically tried to round up Palestinians uh, with, who come into Israel to work, many of them uh, without permits, who were previously allowed by the army to go through because it sees it as a form of economic peace. But in that, in that heightened moment of security tension, they are telling Israelis, actually, we're gonna, we're gonna stop them and we're gonna be uh, closing off the barrier. Uh, another element of this is that now the army is going into places like Janine. They're launching military raids. Uh, part of it was performative and part of it is that they need to inflict violence on Palestinians to maintain uh, their control over them. So the shrinking of the conflict, you know, it's, it's a constant violent process. It requires a violence of the Israeli state to uh, preserve that quiet for Israelis. Um, and here you kind of have these uh, these two tools of like economic measures of trying to create this economic peace for Palestinians uh, to be able to work in Israel to get a few more permits and then uses military force and violence when when it needs to uh, and it always needs to because Palestinians are always discontented by having their lands confiscated they're always discontented uh, by having a military regime come in come in and out as it pleases they're discontented that the IDF commander of the Janine area is the one who holds supreme authority not the Palestinian authority or a Palestinian uh, uh, leader that's respected by the community um, this is what that philosophy means and so even after Bennett you know if Bennett kind of leaves office if the government uh, breaks down that regime is still in place the military infrastructure is still there whoever comes in to the Knesset and comes into the prime minister's office is going to be in enjoying the same uh, levels of impunity and welcoming by the international community who may have disliked Netanyahu, but allowed Netanyahu to go about his ways. They uh, appreciated Bennett and Lapid more, and they still, they even gave him almost a free hand to do as he pleased because of the shrinking the conflict philosophy. Just make it go quiet, do whatever it takes to, to make it go back to quote unquote normal. Uh, but that uh, that policy is always an ongoing violent process. It ebbs and flows and intensifies sometimes, but that's always been a constant. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is striking to me seeing the, the unanimity from the Israeli, Israeli political spectrum. Um, I mean, it, it, there have been, I think, 10 Palestinians killed in the past um, week, including in the like five in the past 24 hours. And, and the 
the, narr the narrative in the Israeli media that I'm seeing, and it's not challenged really by anyone in the political spectrum on anywhere except from some of the Arab parties, is everybody, no matter who they are, who's killed, is a terrorist or a threat. And it doesn't matter if it is an unarmed, you know, half-blind woman who seems to either have not understood what soldiers are telling her or was somehow committing suicide by a soldier. It doesn't matter how far away the kid was who threw the firearm firebomb at a fully armed, you know, Jeep where it could do no damage. Um, everything is, is considered an equal threat and lethal force is necessary. It's hard to see how this doesn't, um, how, this, how this goes back to anything that, that looks like quiet, for Israelis um, without significantly um, becoming more violent for Palestinians. That seems to be the, the calculus. Right. And this really comes back on, you know, how, you know, what gets, what kind of violence gets attention in, uh, in Israeli media and international media among people who are observing uh, this evening, like the ambassadors who are here based in Israel, Palestine, what are they paying attention to? What are they, what kind of acts of violence are they condemning? I think just this morning or yesterday, for example, you had a Palestinian uh, lawyer and member of a popular community against the wall, a father of three was apparently quote unquote killed by accident. And you know, there's not gonna be any in investigation. Nablus. In yeah. Nablus, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's, and you, know, right. and you, and you hear things like, you, you hear diplomats calling for a restoration of quiet, which I have to think the word restoration must ring very um, off, off key for Palestinians when they hear you need to restore the situation, status quo anti, and it means anti attacks on civilian Israelis, not, anti, not status quo anti or Palestinians were not um, facing violence. Absolutely. And it all contributes to this, like the structure of dehumanization, it makes it clear that as far as much of the international community is concerned, you know, Jewish Israeli lives are of value. Palestinian lives are completely not of value. And it's an indictment really of people who uh, are not paying attention to how these kind of deaths are occurring on a regular basis, this kind of slow, cruel, constant violence. Um, and that really needs to be radically overhauled um, because only then, you know, if we're only looking at these kind of, these rare moments of violence in Israeli cities, and not looking at that structural system that's in place, then you're completely missing how this regime works. Yeah, and I would just add maybe as a final thought, if you want to comment, I mean, it, it fits into, and we've, we've been talking to various colleagues on the ground now for, for months, it fits into what we're seeing in terms of Israel's efforts to delegitimize Palestinian human rights defenders, who are the people on the ground reporting what's happening to Palestinians. You still have the six NGOs that were designated last fall by Israel as terrorist organizations still living in this limbo. You still have Mohammed Halabi from World Vision now in, in jail on trial for more than five years, I believe, on, you know, just because he refuses to take a plea bargain and admit guilt because he says he's not guilty. So apparently he'll stay in jail and he'll wants to see it out. But you also have things like the 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 demonization and delegitimization of groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, where you know it, it goes beyond people saying, we don't agree with your conclusion about apartheid. It's the argument is, well, you use the word apartheid, therefore we're not gonna even engage on any of the facts <laughs> that you've documented. And, and we're seeing now this, this suggestion in the US that you know anyone who mentions Amnesty International, therefore they are discredited and anything they say is irrelevant. So don't look at the facts that are actually happening which again, it, it fits into, you can have quiet if it's quiet for Israelis and don't pay attention to anything that's happening to Palestinians because they are somehow less than human or their lives don't matter or, or however you wanna frame it. Sorry, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but that's my observation listening to this. No, it, sum, it, sum, it sums up exactly, it sums up exactly. All right, so, so I, I, 
I so appreciate your your being with uh, with me today, Amjad. I I want to I want to wrap this up here. Thanks for sharing your insights so much, and with me and with the audience. I think we'll probably want to have you back um, not too long from now to talk about the Israeli domestic scene. Um, to our audience, thank you for watching and for listening. And as always, I want to remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast so you don't miss any of our great content. It's on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can also watch a video of this podcast at our website www www.fmep.org. And with that, uh, I'm going to end this. I'm Laura Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.